Chapter Two of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, My Kitty. The shape of a tree is not decided by the pruner only. When the leader is stopped with an eye towards the wind and the branches clipped to a nicety of experience and a forethought, and the happy owner has said to it, "Now I defy you to go amiss this season." Before he is up in the morning, perhaps, his lecture is flown and his labor lost. My wise Uncle Corney had said to me more times than I can remember, Kit, you are a very good boy, a very good boy, and likely to be useful in my business by and by. But of one thing beware, never say a word to women. They never know what they want themselves, and they like to bring a man to the same condition. What wonderful things I have seen among the women! and the only way out of it is never get into it. In answer to this, I never said a word, being unable to contradict, though doubtful how far he was right, but it made me more shy than I was already, while at the same time it seemed to fill me with interest in the matter. But the only woman I had much to do with went a long way to confirm my uncle's words. This was no other than Tabitha Tapscott, a widow from the west of England, who did all our cleaning and cooking for us, coming into the house at six o'clock in the summer and seven in the winter-time. A strange little creature she appeared to me, so different from us in all her ways, making mountains of things that we never noticed, and not at all given to silence. Once or twice my Uncle Corney, after a glass of hot rum and water, which he usually had on a Saturday night to restore him after paying wages, had spoken in a strange, mysterious style of having had his time, or, as he sometimes put it, paid his footing. It was not easy to make out his drift, or the hint at the bottom of it, and if any one tried to follow him alone, sometimes he would fly off into rudeness, or, if in a better vein, convey that he held his tongue for the good of younger people. Such words used to stir me sadly, because I could get no more of them. However, I began to feel more and more, as youth perhaps is sure to do when it listens to dark experience, as if I should like almost to go through some of it on my own behalf, not expecting at all to leave it as a lesson for those who come after me, but simply desiring to enter into some knowledge of the thing forbidden. For I knew not as yet that there is no pleasure rich enough to satisfy the interest of pain. It was on the first Sunday of September in the year 1860 that I first left all my peaceful ways and fell into joy and misery. And strangely enough, as some may think, it was in the quiet evening service that the sudden change befell me. The summer had been the wettest ever known, or at any rate for four and forty years, as the old men said, who recalled the time when the loaves served out to their fathers and mothers stuck fast like clay upon the churchyard wall. Now the river was up to the mark of the road, and the meadows on the other side were lakes, and even a young man was well pleased to feel a flint under his foot as he walked. For the road was washed with torrents, and all the hedges reeking, and the solid trunks of ancient elms seemed to be channeled with perpetual drip. But the sun began to shine out of the clouds at his very last opportunity, and weak and watery though he looked, with a bank of haze beneath him, a soft relief of hope and comfort filled the flooded valley, and into our old western porch a pleasant light came quivering, and showed us who our neighbors were, and made us smile at one another. As it happened now, my mind was full of a certain bed of onions which had grown so rank and sappy that we had not dared to harvest them, 
and instead of right thoughts upon entering church, I was saying to myself, We shall have a dry week, I do believe. I will pull them to-morrow and chance it. This will show that what now befell me came without any fault of mine, for just as the last bell struck its stroke, and the ringer swang down from the heel of it, and the murmur went floating among the trees, I drew back a little to let the women pass, having sense of their feeling about their dresses, which is to be respected by every man, and in those days they wore lovely flounces, like a beehive trimmed with Venetian blinds, and they learned a fine manner of twitching up these whenever they came to steps and stairs, and while they were at it they always looked round, to make sure of no disarrangement. My respect for them made me gaze over their heads, as if without knowledge of their being there at all, yet they whispered freely to one another, desiring to know if their ribbons were right for the worship of the Almighty. Now as I gazed in a general style, being timid about looking especially, there came into my eyes without any sense of moment, but stealing unawares as in a vision, the fairest and purest and sweetest picture that ever went yet from the eyes to the heart. To those who have never known the like, it is hopeless to try to explain it, and even to myself I cannot render, by word or by thought, a mere jot of it, and many would say that to let things so happen, the wits for the time must be out of their duty. It may have been only a glance, or a turn of the head, or a toss of a love-lock. Whatever it was, for me the world was a different place thereafter. It was a lovely and gentle face, making light in the gloom of the tower arch, and touched with no thought of its own appearance, as other pretty faces were. I had never dreamed that any maiden could have said so much to me, as now came to me without a word. Wondering only about her, and feeling abashed at my own footsteps, I followed softly up the church, and scarcely knew the button of our own pew door, for Uncle Corney owned a pew and insisted upon having it, and would allow no one to sit there without his own grace and written order. He never found it needful to go to church on his own account, being a most upright man, but if he ever heard of any other Christian being shown into his pew, he put on his best clothes the next Sunday morning and repaired to the sacred building with a blackthorn staff which had a knob of obsidian. Such a thing would now be considered out of date, but the church was the church in those more established times. Here I sat down in my usual manner to the best of my power, because I knew how my neighbors would be watching me, and saying my prayers into the bottom of my hat, I resolved to remember where I was and nothing else. But this was much easier said than done, for the first face I met, upon looking round, was that of Sam Henderson the racer, the owner of the paddocks at Halliford, a young man who thought a great deal of himself and tried to bring others to a like opinion. He was not altogether a favorite of mine, although I knew nothing against him, for he loved showy colors and indulged in large fancies, and all the young women were in love with him. Now he gave me a nod, although the clergyman was speaking, and following the turn of his eyes I was vexed yet more with his behavior. He was gazing as though with a lofty approval and no sort of fear in his bright black eyes at the face which had made me feel just now so lowly and worthless. In the manor pew, which had been empty nearly all the summer, for the weather had driven our ladies abroad, there she sat, and it made me feel as if hope was almost gone from me, for I could not help knowing that Mrs. Shepherd, who arranged all the worshippers according to their rank, would never have shown the young lady in there unless she had been of high standing. 
and almost before I was out of that thought, my wits being quicker than usual, it became quite clear to me who she was, or at any rate, who was with her. From the corner of the pew there came and stood before her, as if to make general attention of, a highly esteemed and very well-dressed lady, Mrs. Jenny Marker. This was the lady housekeeper, as everybody was bound to call her who hoped to get orders, at Cold Pepper Hall, herself a very well-bred and most kind-hearted woman, to all who considered her dignity. Having always done this, I felt sure of her good word, and hoping much too hastily that the young lady was her niece, I made it feel perhaps less presumptuous on my part to try to steal a glance at her, whenever luck afforded. Herein I found tumultuous bliss, until my heart fell heavily. I was heeding very scantily the reading of the minister, and voices of the clerk and faithful of the congregation, when suddenly there came the words, The Dignity of Princes and then I knew, without thinking twice, that this young lady could never have won the dignity of the manor pew, unless she had been a great deal more than the niece of Jenny Marker. In a moment, too, my senses came to back up this perception, and I began to revile myself for thinking such a thought of her. Not that Mrs. Marker was of any low condition, for she wore two rings and a gold watch-chain, and was highly respected by everyone. But— she cheapened all the goods she bought, even down to an old red herring, and she had been known to make people take garden stuff in exchange for goods, or else forego her custom. The memory of these things grieved me with my own imagination. I was very loath to go, as you will see was natural, without so much as one good look at the sweet face which had blessed me, but everything seemed to turn against me, and the light grew worse and worse. Moreover, Sam Henderson stared so boldly, having none of my diffidence, that Mrs. Marker came forward sharply and jerked the rings of the red blaze curtain, so that he could see only that. At this he turned red and pulled up his collar, and I felt within myself a glow of good will for the punching of his head, and perhaps he had the grounds for some warm feeling toward me, for the reason that I, being more to the left, could still get a glimpse round the corner of the curtain, which acted as a total drop of scenery for him. When the sermon had finished in its natural course, the sky was getting very dark outside, and the young men and women were on best behavior to take no advantage of the gloom in going out, for as yet we had no great gas-works, such as impair in the present generation the romance and enlargement of an evening service, so that when we came forth we were in a frame of mind for thinking the best of one another. End of chapter 2